Hey, Molly. Hi, Jason. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining the Now of Work podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, friends for a long time. I've always looked up to you and someone to the space. So it's uh, it's always fun to have someone on who you can just have kind of a uh, conversation with. I, the only thing I asked before I got in here was if there was going to be video so I could make sure my hair wasn't sticking out. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so that's the only way to do it today is video, isn't it? It's video I, all day, every day. Authentically me. I mean, you know, I have no choice. <laughs> exactly. So, hey, I'd love for people that don't know you as well as I, and I'm sure I'll learn something new, um, just to tell us about yourself, how you got into this HR space, what you do in the HR space, are you in the HR space? Would you consider yourself in the HR space? All of that stuff. I want to be in the HR space. Exactly. <laughs> well, the classic background for a research analyst, I have a theater degree from Boston University. So that's you know, the classic background. Um, but what I always say about a theater, I was a stage manager. And the thing about that that was perfect for corporate America is there's budgets, there's deadlines, there's divas. You know, I mean, it's great preparation for working remotely. Right. For having a portfolio career. So... Uh, that's sort of my deep background. But beyond that, I've sort of worked as a consultant and an analyst in the HR space and the tech space for 20 years now. Which is so just uh, for those that don't understand, so how that be? <laughs> yeah, for those that don't understand how one might make the transition, like me, from a uh, theater background to an right. HR tech analyst, how does one do such? Well, for me, it was the year 99 in Boston, and there were all these jobs happening, and I could either go to Manhattan and try and live on a few dollars a week working for the Lion King, which would have been fun, but, you know, eesh. <laughs> I got this job at a firm. It was a small boutique consulting firm. It was mostly senior people, and I started as an assistant, but basically they were like, you seem bright. Let's have you do things, and I was too dumb to say no, so that's really been the secret to my success, being too dumb to say no to things I had no business being a part of, so... <laughs> <laughs> so 20 years later, 20 some years later, later yeah, I've been here we are, to, right? Yeah, here we are. I've been able to have some amazing projects in that time and work with some amazing people. And the research part, the last 10 years or so of being an analyst is really, I always said the consulting is the micro, you know, what, how do you help one company do something? The analyst is the macro. How do you use numbers and, and data to be able to really understand what's happening and what's driving success for companies? You can then translate that into micro as well, but I think that's been sort of the balance of how do I look at the big numbers and also apply it to an individual or, or a group of people. So what's the HR drug that's kept you in the space for 20 years? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it really comes down to, I could do tech analysis in any space, but on, a, on our best days, we can help people make decisions and make the lives of their company and their individual lives better. And what could be more exciting than that? It's not always our best day. I mean, there's some pretty shitty days too. <laughs> can I say that? Sorry. There's some pretty bad days too. Yeah. But, um, there goes our explicit rating on the podcast. Oh, no, I'm sorry. You'll have to bleep me to keep your clean rating. But um, no, it's really that on our best days, we can help people make decisions and make their lives better, make the lives of their employees better. And that's when it's the golf shot. You know, when that happens, you just you won't do it again. And so you will keep at it so you can find, you can make an aha moment, moment happen for an individual or for a company. So it seems like almost every analyst in the space has a, I'll just call it a bend towards yeah. something, you know, a bend towards yeah. workforce management, a bend towards diversity, a bend toward learning, you know, a bend toward payroll. Like, yeah. you know, for those that, uh, you know, get to know you better, what's, where's your bend? Yeah, well, right now it really is on the combination of payroll and wellness, which sounds weird. That does sound weird. But for me, it makes so much sense because so much of stress and so much of distraction is about pay. 
and wellness is so much about your emotional state, which drives your physical state, which drives your, you know, your ability to learn and everything else. But for me, that's sort of the emerging space over the past couple of years I've really seen because payroll is the one thing that every company has to have. You are not a company, you're a volunteer organization if you don't have payroll, right? Yep. Everything else you gotta fudge about, but you gotta have payroll right. And and on top of that, if you do it right, it's part of the conversation. It is really the articulation of how you value your people, because literally you're putting a value on it. And also it can drive so much that conversation and that well-being and that sort of how you live as part of our company and outside of our company, it is directly tied. So for me, that's kind of where I talk about people think it's weird, but to me it makes so much sense because like that's where you have the transaction, which is so critical, and you have to get that perfectly right as a company. But it's also where you have that emotional exchange and where you're really told what you're valued. And it really impacts your ability to live your life and to be able to show up whole and healthy at work. So does that tie into productivity also when you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if I feel like I'm paid well, um, then I'm going to be able to concentrate. I'm not going to be constantly looking around. And also if I feel like I have the resources, whether they're emotional or physical or financial to take care of myself and my family, I'm going to be able to be more productive. Think about at home, you know, right now, people who are worried about money are not on Zoom conferences, right? People who have lost their job and no income are not having these conversations. And that's okay. They shouldn't be. They need to be doing what they need to do. But once you're beyond that, so when you have all that, you have the luxury and the privilege, truly, of being able to say, like, okay, let me take a step back and how can I make things better, right? That, that is a privilege. And that comes from stability. You know, we talk about the hierarchy of needs. You know, once you're fed and clothed, then you can start to have emotional need fulfillment, right? <laughs> then you start to yeah. have productivity. Then you start to have pride in what you do and things like that. I think that's really important for people to remember. And I think that there's also... We say we want to do these wishy things like wellness, you know, and sort of people are like, oh, wellness, that sounds wishy. But when you think about it as, it's hard to measure, it's hard to operationalize. If you get pay and workforce management, like scheduling right and pay right, that's actually a conversation and a tool you can give managers, even if they don't want to or know how to have an engagement conversation. Those are tools that can cause them to make people engage, right? Yeah. So I think it's a very teachable way, a very measurable way to help people say, if you pay, if you schedule, if you use these tools, you can actually deliver on those so-called bushy goals that a lot of people have trouble with. So when we think about the, you know, the shift of kind of the shift from the future of work to the now of work, the, you know, that, that, yeah. that we're talking about a lot. And hey, we've been talking about the future forever and bang, right. now, we're, <laughs> now, yeah. now we're here at the now. <laughs> Um, you know, as an analyst, you look at software vendors, you know, and you look at what the vendors are doing and you look at how organizations are using those tools. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, you tell me there's great payroll companies out there, but there probably hasn't been a ton of innovation in the payroll space. You know, this direct deposit, direct deposit was a big one, but it's been a while. <laughs> right. It's been a while. And then there's been tweaks, right? Well, the biggest innovation I'm seeing now that I have a lot of concern and a lot of hope for is this on-demand pay. Okay. Right? So some of it's happening from the payroll companies themselves, some of the independent startups that are laying over the payroll companies, and they run the gamut from um, payday loans and sheep's clothing, as I like to call them, to we're going to change the world for the working poor, right? Yeah. Those are very yeah. different ambitions, but they're all sort of stated missions in a way of people in this so-called space of earned yeah. pay, which is, if you're not familiar, it's the idea of if I work today, I should get paid today, yeah. right? Why, what, this construct of getting paid once a month in Europe or here every two weeks, just a construct. You know, can I have access to some or all of my pay up to the moment that I work? And it's really interesting because it's been a recruiting tool. You know, if you worked as a waitress, let's say, and you work at two restaurants that have the same base pay and roughly the same kind of clientele, so you have the same kind of tips, 
But you can walk out with half your money every night on a debit card versus waiting every two weeks. Right. Which one would you look for? Right? Where would you go? And now with things like these, um, the ability to, you know, if before if your car broke down, you couldn't fix your car and you missed three more days of work because your car didn't work. Well, if you had this ability to get the cash, not only could you, could you Uber because you had cash, <laughs> you, know, you had money on a, on a digital format. There's another thing, the underbanked in America, the unbanked in America. You can't get Uber if you don't have a credit card tied to your phone. Yep. You know, so, and there's all this really interesting. So how do we use these tools? So I think that's the innovation we're seeing a lot in payroll right now. So I've never asked. Really yeah. yeah, I've never asked anyone this, but I mean, do you think that that's how everyone will get paid eventually? Or is that too I much of a so. stretch? I think so. Because if you talk about the gig economy, if you talk about anything else where people get work, where you're working either, even if you're working with the same company, every day you work is a choice, right? Yeah. I mean, in America anyway, in a lot of most countries, it's a choice every day. And so can you get, why shouldn't you get paid? It's a construct right now. Yeah, I think about in Europe, my husband actually is still, he's working at a company based in the UK. He gets paid once a month, which in America is weird. But in the UK, they've actually, some of the companies have seen huge uptake in that last week. It's not a ton of money, but just that little bit of bridge. And if you can do it in a way that actually, I mean, some people, it's more like payday loans, right? So people are digging the whole thing. But other ones, it really is in a construct of education and how do you teach people to budget differently and things like that. And everything began with, but I do think that could be the evolution of, of all this because whether you're a gig worker, whether you're a part-time worker, whether you're a contingent worker, you want to get paid. The, the, the closer you can get to be with the work and the pay, you know, the cleaner for the company, right? Because then they're just done, right? They're yep. done with you. But it's also better for you as an individual. Now, on the other side of the equation, the wellness side of the equation, that yeah. thing, that's changed drastically, right? And there's, Absolutely. it seems to be there's a new company every day that's focused on wellness and I kind of would love you to talk a little about the the true innovators versus the <laughs> the companies yeah. that have put on the wellness coat, quote unquote. Right, exactly. Well, I think it's also there's so many kinds of wellness, right? I think wellness we talk about smoking cessation. Yeah. Twenty five years ago, twenty years ago, five years ago, four years ago, we talked about smoking cessation and weight loss and things like that. Now it's emotional health. Now it's you know well being in terms of like your mental well being. Mental health is a huge issue right now even before COVID, and I think this is gonna make it worse, right? There's so many people coming with so much anxiety. I mean, and also the impact of anxiety and heart disease. I mean, there's a huge study on anxiety that was recently published by the Heart Association because of the impact it has on your blood pressure and your heart rhythm, you know? And also the financial ties to that. So we're seeing that financial piece kind of trickle down into this overall wellness. So I think the innovation is really happening in, I think a lot of it has to do the attitude and the, the MO of the companies, right? Like so, so much else, right? Every company has a DNA and yeah. it's not good or bad. It just is, right? Cornerstone, anything they're, gonna do, they're ever going to do is going to be is gonna be grounded in learning, right? ADP yep. is going to be grounded in pay. And it's not good or bad. It just is, right? Yep. And so for a wellness company, where they're coming at it is important. I've actually found, so I recently, as you know, had some brain surgery, which is why I have this great short haircut. <laughs> and part it's of what great. got me too was breathing, right? And so there's an app from Total Brain that was actually brought their CEO and I met and I had a great, he actually coached me and their breathing app got me, I had to be awake during my surgery. They're breathing. Oh my gosh, to it, right. Okay. So I'm like, when I tell people like this can help you do anxiety, I'm like, no, really this like, can help. Yeah. So I think it's never just a final thing, but I think these innovations are how do we deliver to the point of anxiety help? You know, how do we deliver to the point of financial stress help? How do we deliver to the point of mental breakdown and before mental breakdown, <laughs> you know, the help that people need. So I think the more we can, again, sort of connect that, need to the um to the resource i think is where we're starting to see innovation you know by looking for those early warning signs yeah you know molly one of the things that's always bothered me 
um, and I haven't done anything about it except talked about it. Uh, but it's always bothered me is, you know, or most organizations, employees sign up for benefits once a year, you know, but then also throughout the year, there's just this constant barrage of programs, you know, whether they be physical health, mental health, you know, mug. I got a new mug, right? Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, exactly. Something new, you know, it's buried on the portal somewhere and, you know, or maybe I have it, you know, posted above the, in the cafeteria for a day, or maybe it's on the portal homepage for a day. Like, I don't actually think, this is the part that bugs me, most employees know what they're entitled to based yeah. on what their employer actually does for them. I think that's so true. And a, it's a huge missed opportunity for employers, right? Because it's often doing some really great stuff that they actually believe will help people. And they probably would if people knew about it, right? And they're paying for a lot of this stuff too. So like part of me says to companies, like you should get the credit for what you're paying for, first of all, right? You know, you make that investment worthwhile. Also for individuals, again, I think it's about helping them navigate it. It's too much to throw it all at them at once and to throw it at them once a year. Yep. But how do we ensure that we're listening and have sort of early sensing tools that help us know that when it can be pushes, like when people make certain changes in their benefits or make, people make certain changes in their schedules or things like that, or get a pay change, how can we bring to them the resources they might need at that moment, you know? I remember having a conversation with an EAP company once and I said, what if EAP uh, employee assistance programs were actually programs as assisted employees? And they're like, wow. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> because usually EAP meant something bad had happened, like something really, really bad. If you were talking to EAP, something really bad had happened at work, you know? And what if it was actually about programs that actually you could talk to people about your issues and find out what resources you had. Right. I think you're absolutely right. That's where people Companies are investing in these, so they need to get the credit for it. You know, they need to get them used because that's going to be the better investment. But also, individuals need to be able to trust enough, I think, in their system to be able to give them the feedback, let them know how to match them to what some of these opportunities are. So one of the things I've been curious about along those lines is, you know, I mean, wearing an Apple Watch um, with lots of analytics on it, you know, and, you know, now that it's, it's tracking how much I sleep. Right you know, which I have an app that I've opted into that tracks how much I sleep, you know, should I be able to open that to my wellness program that my employer offers to be able to push me content on how to sleep better or, you know, things like that. Where's that line? I think it's interesting because as an individual, I mean, I work for myself. So if I let the boss in on it, you know, I already kind of knew. So (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I have to trust third-party companies if I want that kind of resource, right? So if there's an Apple program or if there's another, you know, a third party that I as an individual have access, I'm, I can opt to let them into or not into my data. But as a company, it's sort of like, do you have the paranoia of like, if they know more about me, you know, oh, what are they going to do to me? Right. <laughs> and versus, and so I think they should be able to, but I think there's a trust issue. So that's why I think a lot of these companies are coming in as a third-party reference. They're like, listen, we do, we are paid for by your company, but we are the ones that interact with your data, not your company. Yep. If they do get anything, it's aggregate data. And the aggregate data can be really helpful. That toll brand company I was talking about before, they also help companies because they start to see, they start to see things like, wow, a lot of people in your company are having trouble with communications in their teams or things like that. So you want to have enough feedback to be able to address things without it being personally identifiable. And I think that's the, I always say for every bit of convenience, you sacrifice privacy and security and you have to decide where the line is for yourself. Yeah. So in this new now of work, uh, I think that there's going to be a huge, um, you know, around wellness, I think there's going to be a huge challenge as things 
as the next normal happens. I'll just say that. I'm not going to call it the old normal. I'm not going to say things go back to the way they were because I don't actually want that. But, you know, as the next normal emerges, um, I mean, what do you, you know, what are a few predictions that you can, could make on that, that you think that, you know, Hey, when this, you know, six, nine months from now, you know, where, you know, and I try to make, help people understand that we were going like full steam ahead. I mean, you said March 1st with you in Las Vegas, you know, I was all over the world in March. Like we hit, we were going full steam ahead and we hit a wall. Right. As hard as we could to the fact where our kids are now running around, our pets are running around, uh, our spouses or partners are running around. Uh, we're worried about going outside. We're worried about if our groceries are clean. Like there's not, it's affected everything. It's not just like the, it's not like the economy just blipped. Right. It affected and it's not everything. like there's other parts of the world that you know are going to be okay. It's not like when your world falls apart and your parents or your brother or your sister can help you out, right? Right. Everybody's world falling apart. So uh, when that next normal reemerges, like what are some what are some of your? I mean, I'm not sure if, how much you've thought about it. I think about it way too yeah. much. But what are some of your thoughts? Well, I think there's a couple things I would like to see happen. I, I don't know if they will, but one is we're going to have to figure out what we do about pay disparity. I mean, today is actually. Um, uh, Pay Equity Day, right, which is the day every year when women would have to work until they earned as much as men do, or whatever. Yeah. Basically, like I would have to work an extra three months to make what a equivalent of a male would be. A non-Latino, let's be very non-Latino or Hispanic male, let's be very clear, or African American or person of color. So, because that would take, you know, there's actually a 14 month differential between Latino women and white men. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but. Um, so when I normally I'm all over that day, right? Because I'm in payroll and things like that. But it, it surprised me today when I saw it on Twitter because we're thinking about so many pay equity issues beyond male, female, and race. Yeah. That we've got to figure that out somehow. I don't know the answer to that, but it's highlighted the fact that people have no savings, people have no vehicle for savings, people have no incentive for saving. And I think so that's going to be really, we're going to have to figure something about that out because this is going to be like a six month blip on everyone's radar. You know, it's not gonna be like some people defaulted on their mortgages, like in 2007, 2008, it's going to be everybody. And so that's going to be very interesting. I think also too, we're going to have to really think about what, what work is because people are going to have this sense of, I did this blended thing and I could do it much easier now that my kids are back in school or whatever else. What am I going to demand of my company? You know, what am I going to demand when it comes to going back to work? Because if I'm lucky enough to have a job, yeah, I'm going to give them some accommodation, but I'm also going to say, like, listen, things that really bad. So how much worse could it be if I had to find another job? Yep. Yeah. And I was just say, just on a personal level, like at 9-11, I remember thinking up until that point, I was like, I have a gold card, I have a, uh, a uh, passport, and I have a cell phone. I can solve any problem in the world, right? <laughs> and I think until this happened again, you sort of was like, I got lulled back into that. I was like, I've got a credit card, I've got a cell phone, I've got a passport, I can solve anything. And there's certain things you can't. And I think that sort of anxiety level, which is, you know, I can handle, I can personally handle fairly well, but I think a lot of people can't. I think that's just going to be so prevalent for the next five to 10 to 10 years in our businesses. How do we deal with that low level anxiety that's going to be undercurrenting the work people do every single day? What do you think about the work from home thing? I mean, you know, I, you know, you work from home. You know, I work from an office, but you know, it's a mile from my home or I work from a hotel room. Right. Um, you know, but for people that have never worked from home, that are now working from home, they're walking their dog, they're with their kids, they're making a meal, and they're still working. And oh, by the way, the technology is there where once the kids go to bed, I can keep working. And now all of a sudden, they're telling me I should go back into work. And my boss, I said that word on purpose, 
is telling me to be there at eight and is making sure I'm staying there till five. Like, yeah. is it, it, I mean, I, I've never actually said this, but is this the end officially of eight to five? I think for a lot of jobs it could be, right? Because a lot of people who are working eight to five jobs, they may have been in the office from eight to five, but they were already working at night, you know, and after hours. I think there's a couple of things. One is the personal boundaries to say, like, I've dealt with this issue a long time ago because in my house I have an office, which you can see behind me. And um, when I'm not, and I try to leave my computer in my office most of the time because over the years I've learned that it's not healthy for me or my husband or my relationships to have my work with me all the time. I have my cell phone with me, but even, even in my house, we don't have kids, but at dinner time we don't have cell phones, you know? And so we've already put some of those boundaries in place. I think on one hand, people are going to have to put boundaries in place because people are going to say, well, during the coronavirus, you worked all the time. Well, yeah, but you know what? Things were different then. So I think one is the person on the employee side, so the personal boundaries. And on the employer side, if you don't have trust, you have nothing. If you need to watch your people work, I always have said to people who work for me, there's a couple, of, if I have to know where you are, what you, if I ever have to ask where you are, what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. I don't want to know where you are, what that's you're doing. That's perfectly if said. If you are being responsive, if you are making your commitments, that's what I want. And I think there's a lot of managers that have not developed the trust to be able to think that way or say those things to their employees. Yeah, it's, fa- it's going to be fascinating to watch. And I think that that, that T word, that trust word is a big, Absolutely. big, 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 big issue. And if you haven't built it before, it's sort of like I always said the best time to think about engagement was 10 years ago, right? <laughs> the best time to build trust was 10 years ago. So if you haven't done it, if you haven't already started to build trust, it's going to be really hard for, I think, a lot of managers. Yeah. So, I, I mean, honestly, in, oh, go ahead. Sorry. So I heard people want people to be logged into Zoom or Slack or whatever so they can see them for eight to 10 hours a day. I'm like, why? Who has the time to even care about that? <laughs> you know, I was like, if you're responsive when I need you, and if you're making your commitments, I don't ever want to know where you are, or what you're doing. <laughs> so, not something I planned on asking you, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Like, what? Are, I mean, tips on building trust remotely. Like, you know, if if I'm a new leader, which I've got, you know, in the world, we have lots of new leaders, or I've never led remotely. And yeah. How can I build trust remotely? I think part of it is being accountable yourself. If you make a commitment, deliver. And I think the more times, because you can't dictate what someone's going to do if you're not, they're not in front of you. And I think that's okay. But if they know that you are being, if you are trustworthy, they will start to trust you. <laughs> so, I mean, you've got to say, you've got to say what you're going to do. You got to do it. And then you got to tell them you did it and you got to be there every time. So if you're leading remotely, you cannot slack. You have to be responsive. You have to be able to be trustworthy. And then I think that's where it really starts. So that's the only thing you can control is your behavior, you know, and you can set those. I think you should have the conversations up front. Like, you may not be as extreme as I am and say, I never want to know where you are, what you're doing. It might, <laughs> you might not be able to start there. But I think to be able to say, like, this is what I expect, and this is what you can expect from me as an adult, as a part of this relationship, and here's what I expect from you. And I think that's where you need to be clear on your conversations about what you expect. And I remember my first job with a consulting firm, they talked about um, the community of adults that we were part of. And I was young out of school, so I barely felt like an adult. <laughs> but the fact that I was treated, when I was brought into the company, I was given this like manifesto about we are a community, started, we are a community of adults. I just thought that respect also started to earn me the trust. I knew that I was being trusted and that they, I could trust them. And that's really what started to build it for me. And that was a remote company too, mostly remote, so. You know, speaking of trust, um, I, I trust you a lot, but I have to ask you this question. And afterwards, you may, verify, right? afterwards you may say, uh, dude, I'm not going to answer that, which you don't have to. But you've always, for my whole life as I've known you, you've always been one of the most positive people in the world. Yet you and I are both very active on social media, um, mm-hmm. Twitter to be specific. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and we, we share very similar political views. Um, <laughs> you tweet yours, I don't. Um, yeah. And when I see you tweet yours, I say, wow, like that's negative. That like I, Molly's being negative. And I was like, is that really her being negative? And I would just love your thoughts on it because I try to block yeah. that out of me, but yeah. I love your thoughts. Well, part of it is I have had to become so authentic that it hurts sometimes. Okay. This is my health battle. I've been, I've decided to be very transparent about all that. Yeah. And so the more I try to not be myself, the worse everything got. Not only but it doesn't bring you down when you do stuff like that, right? No, when I, when I say things that are negative, usually it's because it's shocking that I say it, right? Like I know, I know exactly the word you're thinking of that I use. <laughs> and it's not the worst word in the world, but it's certainly something that I use emphatically. And no, it's, it, 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 to be honest with you, I can say it right now. It's asshat and it's a new yeah. word to me, but I was like, wow, like, uh, like where's this asshat coming from? And it's, I think because it's so unlike everything else, when I actually look back on my Twitter stream, because I do every once in a while, I'm like, okay, I think it is so juxtaposed to everything else I do that hopefully it gets some attention, right? That's mostly why I do it. It's sort of like, it's not the worst word in the world. It's just weird enough and just so so different enough from the usual things I tweet. I'm hoping it does get some attention because I do have some pretty strong beliefs that are being tested on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, that's kind of what it is. And so for me, it's not even negative in terms of like, it doesn't make me feel negative. I mean, I think everyone's, I know what I do. And I try to be transparent about that too. I do have down moments, right? You know, I do have moments where it's like, this was really hard today. Um, I tend not to dwell on those in the moment. I tend to reflect on them. I usually blog about them a week later. Yeah. <laughs> but even the negative, I think, is part of um, part of who we are, you know? And yeah. I, think, I think that's part of why people do trust me. I think that's a great reminder. The authenticity is a great reminder of that. And you're, you're just very open about it. You just it. in front of your grandma. You know what I mean? Like, it's authentically me not to swear in front of people that I consider to be adults, you know? <laughs> so like my father and my grandmother and, you know, people like that. But it's also authentically me to call certain people an asshat on Twitter. Yeah. So authenticity doesn't mean you have to be the same person in every situation. I think that's what people get wrong. Like, doesn't mean you have to be constantly shocking. You have to be constantly sort of um, out there or, you know, or it's inauthentic. It means you have to be who you are in that moment. And that there's certain moments where I would never use that word. And there's certain moments where I would. And I think that's part of authenticity, too. It doesn't mean you have to be the same person all the time. It means you have to be who you are in that moment. So speaking of the who you are, you know, the other thing that I want to just get out, you know, and make sure that we talk about is HR cares, you know, and, yeah. you know, and that whole, or, that whole movement, yeah. I'm going to call it a movement. Um, if you could talk like about the story, talk about the why, talk about the how, you know, all of that, I, 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 it's, a, it's so beautiful to me and it's really who you are. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I never expected, but something that sort of seems inevitable now looking back, but um. Yeah, six, six and a half years ago in 2013, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And I had it for about six or seven months, but then basically at the HR Tech the following year, 2014, I launched this HR Gives Back, which was a cause that was initially just to fund um, research for the, the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And since then, we've raised over $120,000 for the Michael J. Wow. Fox Foundation, which is fantastic. Every year at HR Tech, um, the, the vendors there, and you and lots of other great people have donated to support um, our efforts for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. This year, who knows what's going to happen with HR Tech, but um, I, at some point... Well, it, 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 HR work. Gives Back still needs to be part of it. So we're going to do it virtually, even if it, if it doesn't happen physically. Absolutely. And last year, we had these great... One of the best things I did last year that's been so much fun is I had... Um, my website is called The Unshakable Optimist, which I think for a person with Parkinson's is perfect. The fact that this URL is available is like kismet. But um, 
I made t-shirts that said the unshakable optimist. And what's been so much fun is since I sent them out to people in December, every couple of days I get an email or a text or a tweet where someone says they're wearing their shirt. They take a picture of themselves. They say I was going to wear my shirt today, which I get goosebumps even thinking about that. But this idea that my journey, and I also, so I also, after I started HR Goose back several years ago, about a year and a half ago, I started my blog, which actually started as a chronicle of my journey for my brain surgery. Started with the testing and all of that that I went through. It took about a year of testing and qualifying and all that. And then last October, I finally was able to have it done. So I've been able to be, I luckily really enough to be in an industry and in the job that I could continue to do while this was all happening. Um, although it is probably much easier to understand me now than it was in October. My, my speech case is still fast, but at least it's a little more clear than it was. Um, but I, and I'm not tremoring or shaking or anything. I would say, how are you feeling? I feel amazing. It is a life it's been a life-changing surgery, deep brain stimulation. Surgery is what it's called. So they drilled into my head and put little electrodes and they put little devices in my chest. You can see my scars. And <laughs> um, but it's been life-changingly amazing. So anyway, I've been able to share that journey and be transparent about it, which has caused a lot of people to, I think, um, to care, which is and they've shown their caring through their support and through their financial support, which has been phenomenal. So the Fox Foundation is very near and dear to my heart. They focus on research. Uh, they really focus on, on de-risking early stage medical uh, interventions and surgical interventions. And they really are focused on bringing drugs to market as quickly as possible, which has been phenomenal. And they have in the past 20 years have brought amazing, amazing resources to the forefront. So Yeah, I mean, you should be so proud of that movement. Um, you know, uh, it's been fun doing it with you to a small, small degree. But it, uh, what you've done is amazing tied to that. Well, and they're wonderful people, and I could not think of, I always say it's the most selfish, best thing I've ever done, because obviously I want to cure Parkinson's for everyone, but me first, if we could, please, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll happily be the first one to be cured, if that's what it comes down to. But um, yeah, I feel really privileged to be a part of it, and, priv and privileged and obligated in a good way to bring my story to the forefront, because so many people with Parkinson's are silenced with literally and figuratively. Um, it's supposed to make your speech cadence slower and lower. It has not done that to me at all. <laughs> <laughs> but for most people it does, but I feel like I have literally a voice and figuratively a voice and a platform and to have been able to use that, I think is really an honor. I think that has a lot to do with how full your brain is that you just have to get everything out. I think it is too. I think um, typing was always, I'm a fast typist too, but you know, talking is just, yeah. It, I, I know I talk fast because there's way too much to say and I have too little time to get to it. So. so really quickly, how can people find you? Um, what yeah. are what are the ways they can find you? And then I always close one of these with uh, one last thing. So I'll get to Great. that in a second. Great. So the best way to find me is either unshakableoptimist.com. That's sort of my Parkinson's journey. Um, and then, or mollylombardi.com, which is really easy. Molly with an IE, Lombardi like a trophy, .com, as well as on Twitter, at Molly Lombardi, very creative. On Instagram, at Molly Lombardi. So <laughs> very, very creative names. Yeah, mostly Twitter. And obviously you can email me at Molly at mollylombardi.com. Molly with an IE. Um, or in Jacob Optimist as well. Uh, we'll add all of those to the show notes. So I always try to close with, you know, what I call OMT, which is one more thing, you know, yeah. and my, my one more thing for you is, is uh, ha, ha, as someone who's been through a lot, yeah, you know, and that's just, I mean, I, you know, you've been through a lot and we as a industry are going through a lot right now. Like, you know, how do you, how do you stay positive? How do you stay positive and how do you fight the next, uh, get up the next morning to fight the next fight? Yeah. I think two things, expectations and um, perspective, right? 
So perspective, and as one of my friends reminded me, she's like, you don't always have to have perspective. She's like, because like you can always find someone who's worse off than you, who has it worse than you. So, but it's okay to also be feel bad about yourself sometimes, right? And I always, I have a joke that sort of says, if you're not at the gas station at 10:30 in the morning in your pajamas buying ice cream for breakfast, once in a while you're doing it wrong, right? <laughs> but if you're there every day, it starts to be a problem. If you're doing it once in a while, you need to have that day. So perspective, though, there's always there's always someone worse off. There's always someone, even if they're not worse off for them, they're worse off, right? There's always somebody going through something. You never know what people are going through. So perspective and expectations is the other one. Expectations mean everything. And so if you expect everything to be perfect and it's not, you're going to be disappointed. I remember my wedding day, I said to my husband, today's going to be perfect. Not because it's going to be perfect, but because I decided it is. And it was perfect because I decided it was, not because things didn't go wrong. Yeah. Right? And so I think that's something I take into every day, which is today can be perfect if you decide it's going to be perfect, but you can't expect nothing to go wrong. Right. <laughs> so having the expectations of you don't know what's going to happen, you never know what's going to happen. And usually the best and worst things to me, I could never have imagined. So I think that's what sort of keeps me right. It's like the worst things you couldn't have imagined, so don't try because you waste a lot of time feeling anxious. And the best things that happened to me, I couldn't have imagined. Wow. Those are the two things that I would throw out there. Yeah, I love that. I, uh, I, I love asking that question. And every time I ask it, I get choked up because someone gives a beautiful answer. And that was a like totally beautiful answer. Well, thank you for asking because I never really articulated that way. But I think those really two, they're the two things that comes down to it. Perspective and expectations can change everything. No, I, and I think people, sometimes I don't think people talk about those enough. And I think we all have an opportunity to learn from each other. Well, I think, and expectations too, like how many times, think about your own life or other people, or even your children, right? My nieces and nephews, they expect something to be so great. And it's not, and they're yeah. so bummed. It's like, yeah. but if they expected a little bit less, it would have been spectacular, you know? Yeah. The more we can set expectations, good, bad, and indifferent, I think the, the better off we are because it's always, the thing that makes you feel the worst is the, the unmet expectation. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was thank so you. much fun talking to you. Um, love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. And, um, you know, the now of work is going to be exciting and uh, exciting to have you be a big part of it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.